Today's episode of Lions of Liberty is sponsored by Ammo.com. And if you've ever wanted to save money purchasing ammunition while helping a libertarian cause, well, this is your lucky day because, you see, Ammo.com is run by fans of this program, fellow liberty lovers like yourself, and they want to give back to Lions of Liberty fans by offering $20 off any order over $200. Not only that, but they will redirect 1% of every sale to a pro-freedom organization such as the Electronic Frontier Foundation, the Institute of Justice, and many more. Not only can you save money, but you can rest well knowing you are supporting a great liberty cause. So head on over to ammo.com slash lionsofliberty or just click the link conveniently located in today's show notes over at lionsofliberty.com slash 373. It's very easy to make yourself believe that what's good for you is good for the world. But the reality is it's bad for everyone. My profession is a cartel that is exploiting and harming patients across the country, and I'm dedicated to exposing that. Welcome to the Lions of Liberty podcast. Here's your host, your guide, your shining beacon of liberty, Mark Clare. Hello, hello, and welcome back to another edition of Lions of Liberty. And oh, what a, what a great time we had last week on the uh, the Electric Liberty Land Halloween special. I don't know what happened there. I don't know if Gary Johnson snuck some special treats into my bag or what, but things got really weird. That's all I know. So be sure to go ahead and check that out. That's the last edition of Electric Liberty Land, which if you're a good fan of the show or just a fan of the show at all, hopefully you've hit that subscribe button in iTunes, in Stitcher, wherever it is you listen to this show, you can click on back and listen to that. Of course, Electric Liberty Land is just one of three shows here on Lions of Liberty. The other, of course, is the one you're listening to right now. This is the flagship Lions of Liberty podcast where I bring you interviews with leaders in the libertarian movement, as well as host occasional roundtable discussions in a little show we call Libertarians in Living Rooms Drinking Liquor. The next rendition of that, by the way, will be our Thanksgiving special that we do with our friends at Blast Off with Johnny Rocket and Raylene Lightheart. Really looking forward to that one. It's a raucous time every single year. And of course, we wrap up every week with John Odermatt's hard-hitting look at the broken criminal justice system on Felony Friday. You get all that and so much fun here at Lions of Liberty each and every week. But enough about us. Let's get to today's guest. All right. My guest today is a practicing hospitalist and expert in healthcare policy. In his upcoming book, White Coat Cartels, he uncovers the dark side of the U.S. healthcare market. How very, very spooky. I'm very pleased to welcome Dr. Kyle Varner. Kyle, are you ready to roar? I'm ready to roar with the Lions of Liberty. All right. You know, Dr. Varner, we had the pleasure of meeting at the Libertarian National Convention this past June. And I know you have been a libertarian and a big time supporter of the Libertarian Party for a long time. So why don't we just start there? How did you first become a libertarian? Well, you know, I was about uh, 14 or 15 years old, and I started thinking about politics. That's about the age I started just considering politics, and I didn't know what side of the spectrum I fell on, whether it was liberal or conservative. But I remember thinking, even at that age, coming to the conclusion myself that it was really stupid that drugs were illegal, because to me, it was so obvious that people were hurt by the prohibition far more than they were hurt by the drugs themselves. And so I started searching around on, well, I think it was Yahoo at that time, because that was pre-Google days. And I 
found some essays by this guy named Harry Brown, who was running for president. That was in 1998, late 1998. And so I started becoming a really big fan of Harry Brown. And I actually got involved in the Libertarian Party then. And I had the privilege in 2000 of going to the National Convention in Anaheim for the Libertarian Party. And even though I was 15 years old at the time, I was able to vote for Harry Brown to be the Libertarian nominee, even though I couldn't vote for him in the actual election. So you were a delegate at that age of 15. Yeah, I was I was actually an alternate delegate, but there weren't enough uh, slots in my state. So yeah, I was a delegate. Wow, that's amazing. It was. It was an experience I really remember very fondly to this day. So you dove right in there. And that's really interesting that the drug war was kind of the first issue that inspired you to think about things more. Now, I don't I don't want to delve into your past too much, but I mean, were you around people as a teenager that were doing drugs? Like, is that something that started to make you think that way? Or was it just kind of a logical thought process that you started to have thinking like, why is throwing someone in jail supposed to help them? How did that actually come about? A purely logical thought process. I went to a fancy private school where no, but I mean, marijuana was actually a taboo. I mean, if you, and, and there aren't many, there were, even then, there weren't that many enclaves of the world where marijuana was a taboo, but I grew up in one of them. And so, I mean, I just thought logically as I was thinking about politics, it made very little sense. The, the idea of a black market isn't a complex thing. And I knew what prohibition had done. I learned about prohibition uh, of alcohol in school. And, you know, if you have two neurons firing in line with each other, you're going to understand that there's a parallel between alcohol prohibition and all the other kinds of prohibition. I don't think you need somebody explicitly to tell you, but certainly most people do, but I didn't. What was it like getting involved in the Libertarian Party as a teenager? I, I got to imagine there weren't a ton of other people your age when you when you showed up at your first LP meeting. What kind of reception did you get from, you know, I guess the the adults in the room, so to speak? Yeah, people were really nice to me. Now, you know, I got involved first in the county party and then in the state party. And everyone was really nice to me. I actually held office in the county party. I was a secretary for a while. I ran for vice chair of the state party, but lost. And they were all very nice. Obviously, yeah, there weren't anybody, uh, there wasn't anybody else my age, but people were very supportive. Anytime I had a project that I wanted to do, people donated money, people helped me out because, you know, I was a kid. I had actually a radio show for a little while that was basically sponsored by different libertarians who had businesses that bought ads on it. And I think they bought ads just to support me. So it was really great. And, you know, to this day, I still know some of those people. So as an example, if I, uh, the executive director of the Libertarian Party of Washington, when I was 15, is now living in New Hampshire. And so I, I still know her. And so I've made some lifelong friendships that way that go back, you know, almost 20 years now. That's funny because, I mean, that's what we're doing here like 20 years later with this podcast. You know, a lot of the sponsors that we end up connecting with and bringing on, they're really just other libertarians who in many ways want to support the show and have similar projects. But you were doing this way before podcasting was cool, I guess, huh? Podcasting wasn't a thing back then. I had uh, brokered time on a radio station. I believe I paid 100 bucks a week and I got an hour and I sold four different ads to four different businesses for 25 bucks each. And I got the time on the air. And then I had lots of cool people on the on the show. I had Barbara Brandon on the show, Mary Ruard on the show. I had Art Olivier on the show. He was the vice Getting president. some big names back then, huh? <laughs> yeah, it was pretty exciting and a lot of fun. Very cool. We'll, we'll have to dig and see if you can find out some of those archive shows at some point. I don't know if you have any, have any of those laying around. It'd be interesting to listen to. A- I, I'll have to look. I, I'll have to look and see if I can find some. 
Well, Kyle, I'm kind of curious then, you know, did your interest in libertarianism and libertarian ideas at such a young age, did that have any influence on your decision to go into the medical profession? Well, not really. <laughs> if anything, I might have worried you off of it a little bit. Yeah, well, so not really, but maybe. And so here's how it, here's how it went down. So I got into, as a result of going down the libertarian rabbit hole, I got into Ayn Rand. And I got this idea in my head that I was a fancy intellectual who was smarter than everybody else I was around in high school. And so... I wanted to go to a fancy intellectual school and I wanted to, at that time, I wanted to become a lawyer and I wanted to get into constitutional litigation. That was what I wanted for my career. So I go off to college, to St. John's College, which is the great book school. It's this ivory tower for kids who think they're smarter than other kids. And uh, I went there and studied basically philosophy for four years. And in the process of studying philosophy for four years, I came to the realization that I may not like to be a lawyer because probably what I was going to do as a lawyer was going to be to make weaker arguments sound strong, to, to argue in bad faith. That is to say, you, you, as a lawyer, you, you fight for your client, whether you personally think your client is right or wrong. And so, you know, maybe I would be able to be a constitutional lawyer promoting libertarian causes, but maybe I'd end up just as an ambulance chaser doing wrong things. Who knew? But during my junior year of college, I became aware of a Caribbean medical school system that I didn't know existed. And so I had never allowed myself to consider the possibility of being a doctor. And I didn't allow myself to consider the possibility because I wasn't that good of a student. I was an okay student, but I wasn't a great student. And I knew I would not get into medical school in the United States. When I heard about this system of medical schools outside the United States that basically took black sheep like me and turned them into doctors, I got very excited because it was a fascinating field. It's a field that pays more than law. And that was also right about the time we were starting to hear about this congressman who was considering a presidential run, you know, Ron Paul. And I knew that Ron Paul had used the authority and the place that being a doctor puts you in the community to do tremendous advance of libertarian ideas. So this all kind of came together for me to say, hey, why don't I go overseas and get a medical degree and kind of take the back door into this profession where I can make a lot of money, where I can have a lot of authority in terms of, uh, of intellectual authority. People will listen when I talk and see what I can do from that side to promote libertarian ideas. So how does that work? You can actually go to you know a medical school overseas and then what you just have to pass, you know, the, the certain exams when you get back and it's just as if you had gone to to one here? Well, kind of, but there's a bit of a caveat there. So it's not quite that simple. So the schools in the United States have very limited enrollment and they only accept between 10 and 15% of their applicants. The schools overseas will accept darn near anyone. And then, yeah, there are uh, a series of examinations. There's four total exams called the United States Medical Licensing Exam. There's step one, step two. There are two parts of step two. So step two, clinical knowledge and clinical skills. Step three, and uh, that's a total of four exams. So you pass those exams and you you can get a certificate from the ECFMG or the Educational Commission on Foreign Medical Graduates. And then you can take this and you can apply to residency. Yeah, I can't ever practice medicine in the U.S. without residency. So it's hard sometimes to get a residency because those are capped as well, the numbers. So there's a scarce number of residencies, but they're not quite as scarce as medical school slots. So I was able to go to medical school abroad, take all those exams, do pretty well on them. And then I had to come and fight for a residency slot. Luckily, I got one. And so I got a residency slot and completed residency. And it's that completion of a residency in the U.S. that really gets you into the U.S. medical cartel. 
Right. I was going to say, I mean, this your story here just plays right into exactly what you're talking about with that phrase you use, white coat cartels. You just said the term again there. I mean, just at two levels already, you've mentioned the caps, the caps of people that they'll accept into medical schools and the caps of people that they'll accept into residency. So why don't we dig into that more? I mean, where do these caps come from? Who enforces these caps? Why are these caps in place? Why, why can't they just accept whatever number of people want to study medicine <laughs> or they're going to meet certain, you know, right, standards. right. Why don't we have a free market? Why do we have artificial caps? And so when the American Medical Association was first founded, they were very honest and they were explicit in their reasoning why. And one of the first chairmen of the American Medical Association talked, I uh, gave a speech, he gave a speech in Tennessee at a meeting and he said, we need to raise the educational requirement to become a doctor because it will reduce the number of doctors and result in higher profits for those of us who remain. Well, at least that's straightforward. Straightforward, honest. I give it to him. He was honest. And they have been doing essentially that in an unrelenting manner since the 1850s. There are other things that go on. But what it's resulted in today is that we have these organizations. And there are two primary culprits. One is the Liaison Committee on Medical Education, or LCME. And the other is the ACGME, or the American Council on Graduate Medical Education. These are two organizations that are ostensibly private. They are private nonprofits. They have boards that are self-perpetuating. There's no democratic control over them. But they are referenced to the state laws of all 50 states. If you want to have a medical school where the graduates are recognized in the United States, it must be accredited by the LCME. All the state legislatures have said so. There's no other uh, option besides the osteopathic option, but the, even the osteopath, they have their own little cartel. We'll set that aside. It's not super important for the purposes of this illustration. So this is a this is a really interesting case. Sorry to step in, but I mean, sure, it's a really interesting case because a lot of times when we think about you know broad licensing and, and that sort of thing, we think about it on the federal level. But this is really a case where private institutions have really embedded themselves across the nation, but at the state level to really enforce this, which in many ways is, is a lot more difficult to combat. Yeah, it's extremely difficult to combat. But the ACGME managed to embed itself at the federal level in this way. So after getting themselves embedded at the state level, they went about creating a bunch of regulations to raise the price very high of training a resident physician. And they did this by getting Medicare to pay for the residencies. So what they then did in 1997 is went to Congress during a budget crisis and the chairman of the AMA at the time testified before the U.S. Senate that there would be a surplus of doctors and we need to reduce the number of doctors in the United States. And the way we could do this is by capping the money that Medicare will pay. So what they did is the first step, raise the cost. Second step, subsidize it. Third step, cap the amount they pay. Fourth step, reap the profits from a shortage because they've got a shortage, but they've got caps. So roughly every family in the United States pays about $900 a year extra in health care costs that just goes to the inflated physician salaries in the United States. It's amazing to think that there could ever be an argument made for having 
too many doctors, too many people who can help people who are sick, especially here when we, you know, we hear so many problems of having to wait for a doctor. I mean, I can't tell you how many times I've had to wait weeks and weeks just to get a doctor's appointment just here in the United States, let alone in countries that have actual you know, true centralized control. You're absolutely right. But this is actually also partially a an unintended consequence of our third party payer system. And what I mean by that is that if you or I have a regular health insurance plan or Medicare or Medicaid, we don't bear the cost of our medical decisions and we certainly don't bear the marginal cost. What that means is you pay once and then you consume as much as you want. It's like a buffet, but it's a very expensive buffet of medicine. And so the idea behind capping doctors was also the idea behind capping hospital beds. And we can talk about certificate of need laws. And I talk extensively about these in my book. But there's an economist named Romer, and he called it the Romer effect. And what he said is that if you have a hospital bed available in an insured population, it will be occupied. And that the only way we control spending is if we can control capacity. So you've got the doctors lobbying to keep themselves scarce so their wages are high, but you've got the insurance companies interested in keeping services scarce because if services are abundant, people will overconsume. They think it's the only way with an insured population to control consumption is by, is by creating a shortage. I'm kind of curious, like how aware of and supportive of this current system, this this restrictive system that artificially caps the amount of doctors, the amount of hospital beds, uh, everything we've discussed here. How supportive of it consciously, I guess I might say, are are other people in your profession? Obviously, you know, people are all members of these organizations. They all support them on some level. But I, I got to imagine there are some people that just sort of go through the system and don't really think about it too deeply. And then there are probably others who actually know exactly what it does and, and you know, support it anyway. Yeah, there are a few people who are in the medical profession who understand, but most people in the medical profession are very invested in their social prestige and they're very invested in their financial prestige and it biases the way they think. So they favor centralized control. They consider patients stupid and they consider that they uh, have the power to make their patients healthy. They think it's a good thing. And uh, you can really see this when you hear them talk about nurse practitioners because nurse practitioners are what we call mid-level providers. They provide many or even most of the services a doctor provides, but they have less training. And you will hear outrage on the part of doctors. And in the doctor's forums that I go into that are like closed Facebook groups only for doctors, you will hear people say explicitly, these people are coming for our jobs. Our salaries are going to go down. We have to fight nurse practitioners. It's like the immigration argument on a, on a smaller scale. It is. But then they will say, but they have less training than us, forgetting very conveniently that every study ever done on outcomes under nurse practitioners shows that they have equal outcomes to doctors, suggesting it to an honest person that our training is excessive, not that their training is inadequate. But they will then cite this about training. And what it comes down to is this. It's very easy to make yourself believe that what's good for you is good for the world. And so doctors believe that them being like priests and them having a scarcity and them having authority is good for everyone. But the reality is it's bad for everyone. My profession is a cartel that is exploiting and harming patients across the country, and I'm dedicated to exposing that. 
All right, well, let's talk about some ways that you approach your own practice as it relates to, to this kind of stuff. I mean, how do you operate in, in your own life through this profession that you see as so cartelized that you see so many problems with? Are there any things that you do differently to try to sort of either alleviate this problem a little bit for yourself and your patients? And of course, like you're doing right now, really to expose the system and change it. So I practice as a hospitalist. And what that means is that I see patients in the hospital. And unfortunately, this means I have to play ball with programs like Medicare, Medicaid, and third-party insurance companies. And I think all of these guys are the devil incarnate. I hate it. But I really love critical care medicine. I love the opportunity to take somebody who is dying before my eyes and make them live. And so I have this kind of whole list of people in my head who are alive today because of things I did for them. And it makes me really happy. And I find a lot of personal satisfaction in that. So personally, I'm really conflicted because I want to get out of hospital medicine because of the payer structure. But I want to stay in hospital medicine because I really love taking care of really sick people. It's a joy to do. I mean, sometimes it's very emotionally difficult, right? People dying under my care is something I really hate. But there's there's this joy in that that I never found in primary care medicine when I was training. Now, that being said, I'm investigating some new practice models and I'm going to open a kind of micro practice of my own pretty soon online where I'm going to try to take a primary, the conventional medicine training that I have, and I'm going to combine it with lifestyle medicine, which means helping people to craft a healthy lifestyle, which in most cases can do more for the management of their disease than the drugs I prescribe. And I'm hoping I can replicate the kind of joy I get from saving someone's life in the hospital into the kind of joy I get from taking care of someone in private practice. And if I'm able to do that, I'm going to leave hospital medicine. And I'm going to opt out of Medicare and spend even more time, hopefully, exposing the horrible cartel situation we have. In your process of trying to set up this new private practice, I'm kind of curious what kind of like legal hurdles or legal, legal obstacles as it pertains to the medical profession have you encountered along the way? Well, uh, so my practice is supposed to, is going to be an online practice. And so in order to serve the most number of people, I've been uh, getting medical licenses in lots of states. And right now I have 24 state medical licenses. That has been an investment and a nightmare. In the last six months, I've spent over $15,000 obtaining these state medical licenses. I've spent probably over 100 hours filling out forms. And I have a company that I've hired to fill out forms for me as well. I've been to the notary over 50 times, had different things notarized. I have had photographs of myself, had to print out like over 100 photographs to affix them to different places on applications. I've had my fingerprints taken about 20 times at various police stations. So I'm going through a ton of bureaucracy in order to be able to provide medical care to people across a broad geographic area because the jurisprudence is that I have to be licensed where the patient is physically located. So that's what I'm doing right now. I have to obviously also create my practice infrastructure in a way that complies with HIPAA. So I can't just give patients my email address and say, email me. It has to be a HIPAA secure thing. I can't use just any scheduling software. It has to be scheduling software where I have a special legal agreement with the company that runs the scheduling software indicating that they'll keep everything confidential because of HIPAA. The bureaucracy is extremely burdensome. 
Kyle, what would you say to people that, you know, they hear your tale here about setting up this practice and all the hoops you got to go through? But I know a lot of people who would say, well, you know, it sucks he has to put up with a lot of bureaucracy and and go through all these steps, but this stuff is necessary or else. uh, And I'm sure there's a lot of or else's that will follow that. But people will say, no, or else you're going to get some quack that just sets up a website and starts giving people bad advice and, you know, bad treatment plans. You need these licensing at the various states to to make sure that people know that they're getting the right service from, you know, a, a real doctor. What, I'm sure you hear this stuff out there all the time. So what do you say to that kind of objection? Uh, well, the first thing I say is that most doctors in the United States today give bad advice. For example, the current standard of care for diabetes involves giving people insulin, basically just trying to put a cap on the disease as it goes forth. Do you know that diabetes is essentially reversible, or at least type 2 diabetes is essentially reversible, or, or another word, maybe mostly curable among most patients? And yet... I have very rarely found a patient who's diabetic who knows this. My patients with diabetes come into the hospital losing their kidneys, losing their feet, losing their eyesight, and they don't even know that with the right dietary modifications, not even a drug, with the right dietary modifications, they could cure that disease. So so they're not necessarily, a lot of these people aren't necessarily refusing to make lifestyle adjustments. They're not even presented with that as an option or as, as a possibility. They think they just have diabetes. Exactly. The quality of medical care people get is extremely low. They walk into a doctor, they say, you've got this disease, take this drug. Now I can bill your insurance, get out, come back next month when I can bill your insurance again. That's the medical model and suggest that somehow the regulation we have is keeping us safe is absolutely asinine. But you know, what's interesting is that the federal government doesn't think this is necessary. Because, for example, I am not licensed in the state of California, and because of the burdensome nature of their licensure requirements, I refuse to do it. But I could go and work at a veterans hospital in California. I could work at a federal prison in California. I could work at a military base in California. And the reason is because they'll let you work on those places with any medical license. Why is one medical license not good enough for every state like a driver's license is? And the answer is because of the cartels, because when I have a license in, for example, Texas, I'm working on getting a Texas license, that's a very hard license to get. And when a hospital has a shortage of doctors in Texas, they can't go all around the country looking for somebody to fill that shortage. They can only get people already licensed in Texas. So it exacerbates the shortage problems who profits the ones who have the licenses, who now can charge exorbitant prices, who now can gouge the hospital. And I've been in positions where I've been able to gouge hospitals before for large sums of money by saying, oh, you have a shortage. Yeah, but I'm not really interested in working those days. And then they come back and say, we're desperate. We'll have to close if you're not going to work these days. Okay, well, I can name my price and I can name a very high price. That's the effect of the current Byzantine licensure law system that we have. And when you create a situation of scarcity, what do you think happens to quality? When I am so scarce that they're willing to pay me thousands of dollars a day and fly me first class across the country, as this happens in the past because of a supply crunch, what do you think they would do if I do a bad job here and there? Well, the answer is that they'll keep their mouth shut about it because they are going to lose so much if they let me go. And so what you see and what I have seen over and over again is that the scarcity of doctors leads hospital systems to look the other way when there are bad doctors because they cannot easily replace them. If you fire a neurosurgeon from a hospital, you could lose millions. So instead, they keep the bad neurosurgeons on the job. And there was a neurosurgeon in Texas named Dr. Christopher Dunn. 
I think I've got his name right, who now is in prison because of the horrible quality of care he provided and the number of people he maimed. And the hospital systems were looking the other way because neurosurgeons are so scarce. So you've got a licensure system that they sell as keeping people safe. But the real life effect of the licensure system is to make doctors so scarce that they can get away with murder. I think that's such an important point to emphasize because I think a lot of times in this conversation, we talk about the economics of it so much and how it drives up costs and stuff like that, which obviously that's all very important. But then when you really talk about the human aspect of it and the fact that literal doctors can literally kill people and get away with it, not necessarily malevolently, but they can be so bad and continue to get work because of this sort of artificial shortage that is made where everyone is kind of stuck in the system that they, they kind of have to keep on the bad doctors to even stay in business. It's, it's really frightening. Yeah. yeah, You know, and then people will say, if I'm arguing with a leftist or, or a big government person, they'll say, yeah, but we have state medical boards to address this and they'll kick out the bad doctors. But if you go through the state medical board's disciplinary history, they're primarily interested in people who are prescribing opioids too much. They're primarily interested in people who are having sex with patients. And they are primarily interested in financial things. What they are not doing very frequently at all is disciplining people who are bad at their job or hurting patients. That's not really on the radar of a, of a medical board. And it's really unfortunate, you know, and they do a very bad job. They also say, well, we want to keep doctors in practice uh, when at all possible. So, for example, in California, there's an OBGYN who has been accused like seven times in a row of basically molesting his patients. And the medical board keeps sending him to rehabilitative programs. And so uh, you have to ask, like, well, dude, if you were... Like if you genuine, if these were all misunderstandings, why didn't after like the third accusation, you start having a chaperone in the room when you examine patients, which is taught in school as best practice always. If you're doing an intimate exam on a patient, you have somebody else there as a witness to verify that nothing untoward happens. But this guy just never did it. It's so obvious what's going on. And the California Medical Board just keeps engaging in this very ham-handed attempt to send him to rehabilitation. But the minute you prescribe a drug under a new practice model, like an asynchronous telehealth model, uh, the California Medical Board will, will try to come after you with everything they've got. So the answer here is that the medical boards are more invested in the way things are are done than they are in actually protecting people from from bad doctors it's an extremely dysfunctional system it's a cartel hey guys while we're on the subject of healthcare i want to take a quick break to let you know about our longest time sponsor health excellence plus this is an incredible alternative to traditional health insurance that will help you take control of the cost of your medical care with rising costs of medical care and health insurance, for many of the reasons talked about on today's show, I might add, Americans are looking for a cost-effective and efficient way to provide financially for the medical needs of their family that also complies with the Affordable Care Act. Whatever the goals and motivation behind the law, the net result has been neither affordable nor improved access to care. Whether you want to take back control of your own health care and related costs, or you want someone new to manage them for you, or you're somewhere in between, Health Excellence Plus has a solution for you. Through an innovative layering of tools and technologies, Health Excellence Plus finds members the best care for the best price. To learn more, head over to lionsofliberty.com slash health or head directly to our affiliate link at lions.mympb.com. That's lions.m as in Mary, Y as in yes, M as in Mary again, P as in pool, B as in boy.com. 
Well, Kyle, I want to, before we let you go, I want to kind of discuss a little bit of some of the ways that people, like patients, can actually help themselves and get around a lot of these higher, you know, higher costs that they're facing because of the cartel system. And one thing that we haven't really discussed, I've had several doctors on the show, you know, discussing this issue in the past, but one thing that I've never really touched on too much that I know you're a big proponent of is uh, this idea of medical tourism, where people can go to other countries, get a lot of the same or maybe even medical, better medical care in some cases for a much, much lower cost. And a lot of people are doing this, you know, to deal with major medical problems that they occur, major surgeries that they need. So can you detail that a little bit, a bit about that, about how people, if they do say are facing some $100,000 surgery, for example, that they simply can't afford and aren't covered for, how can they go about seeking that kind of treatment abroad? And, and why also, why are some of the reasons that they are able to achieve things in, you know, such a more affordable way overseas? Yeah, certainly. So, uh, you know, I am a huge advocate of medical tourism and, in fact, such a huge advocate that I often tell people the only way you will see me in a U.S. hospital is if I'm too sick to get to the airport. I actually had surgery in Mexico about six years ago. I had bariatric surgery. So something else which we never discussed from my past is that I've struggled tremendously with obesity for my entire life. And so when I was in medical school, I decided that I wanted bariatric surgery, that I, that, that was going to be the only viable solution for me. And I was quoted about $30,000 in the United States to have the surgery. Not only that, but I wouldn't have met, strictly speaking, the criteria to have the surgery in the United States. So I probably wouldn't have been able to find anybody to operate, even if I had $30,000 in my pocket. Wait, wait, I'm sorry. Can we stop on that for just a minute? I mean, even you're saying even if you just had $30,000 cash, you didn't what meet like certain weight requirements or something to get that surgery? Exactly. So the requirements to get bariatric surgery in the United States is basically that you have a BMI of 40 or you have a BMI of 35 or higher and two comorbidities. I had a BMI of 35 and higher and one comorbidity. So I didn't quite meet the threshold. And you might think, well, shouldn't the doctor and the patient be able to make this decision? And the answer is yes, but there's some case law that's very disturbing where, and this actually happened at the hospital I did my residency, where basically a lady had the surgery when she didn't quite, well, she hadn't met the criteria to have the surgery. And then in the preoperative program, she lost enough weight. So she no longer met the criteria. She had the surgery. She had some really bad complications. And as a result of these really bad complications, she sued. And she said, well, they should never have done the surgery because I had lost so much weight during the preoperative program. And there were dueling witnesses. One, one witness in the case said, oh, you should have done the surgery. The other said you shouldn't have. But the judge uh, basically said that the witness who said you should do the surgery had a conflict of interest, threw that out, found in favor of the plaintiff. But it's created this really toxic environment where if you don't meet, see, in the United States, a guideline can be, is, is, is like a weapon. Because if you don't do something according to the guideline and something bad happens, you're liable. You can be sued and you know there's going to be someone out there willing to testify against you because you violated a guideline. And so as a result, you have doctors who are practicing kind of scared medicine. And so the reality is that, that some people just don't get help because it's hard to go against a guideline. 
And so I don't think I would have been able to find a bariatric surgeon in the United States to operate on me. It's very scary because on one end, you know, we're, we're talking about how so many bad doctors are allowed to stay in the system. And then on the other end, a lot of good doctors are hampered from actually giving the help that would actually help their patients. Well, yeah, people in the United States routinely follow guidelines in a very stupid way. They think that because there is a guideline that they no longer have to think and that they're protected and they just reflexively follow the guideline without ever understanding the basis of the guideline and without ever uh, considering the unique attributes of their patient and what's best for their patient. And this, so this is partially because they're scared of litigation, but it's also partially because they're overworked. And when you're overworked, when you have to, because there, there aren't enough doctors, you don't have enough time to think about your patient. And so as a result, it becomes more difficult to create a personalized and customized treatment plan. So they just go with what the specialty guidelines have recommended. It's a big problem I have with the way medicine is practiced in the United States. Oh, no, I was just going to say, like, you know, if somebody is in maybe a similar situation to the one you were in, what would you recommend as kind of their, their first steps? And maybe not necessarily that surgery, but if someone does need a major medical procedure, what would the first steps be that you recommend them to try to seek out, you know, what country they can go to, what hospital they can go to, and that sort of thing? Yeah, so it's going to depend on what you need done, but you would first go to Google and start reading just for just about for every surgery, whether it's bariatric surgery or orthopedic surgery or heart surgery or gender reassignment surgery, there are large groups of patients in forums online who talk about their experiences going abroad because thousands and thousands of people leave the United States every day for medical care. So you, you can go just with Google as your first resource, not your only resource and not your last resource, but your first resource, you can get an idea of where things are happening. And so, for example, if you want bariatric surgery, Tijuana, Mexico is the epicenter. It's the best place. But if you want gender reassignment surgery, Thailand is the epicenter. If you want plastic surgery, Brazil and Colombia are where it's at. And there's little centers of excellence all over the world. But you would go and you would find these things and then you would start talking to some of the doctors and you would also start talking to some of the patients. There are also some really well-used review sites where patients go and rate their doctors. That's very uncommon in the United States outside of cosmetic medicine because people don't get to choose their doctors and there's no functioning market. But just like you would go on Yelp or, or TripAdvisor, there are also websites just like this for doctors. And you can figure out who's good and who's bad. And then finally, there are companies called medical tourism facilitators. And their job is to help you basically take care of all of the things that go around a trip for a surgery. So for example, I used one in Tijuana for my bariatric surgery. They picked me up at the airport in San Diego. They drove me across the border. They sold me a package that included the surgery. It also included hotels. It included a driver, a translator if I needed it. And so you can buy these whole packages where they're going to pick you up at the airport. They're going to take care of you. They're going to help you if things go wrong. There are insurance policies that you can buy to cover the financial implications of a complication if you have it while you're abroad. So you just have to start reading. And certainly you may find some useful information at my website, drvarner.com. And as we continue to build it, there'll be more useful information. If you're interested in bariatric surgery abroad, we just created a guide that you can sign up for my newsletter at drvarner.com and download a guide about bariatric surgery that has a lot of good information about going abroad for that. 
But there, you can go abroad for such a wide variety of medical care. And the truth is, I will not get care in the United States if I can avoid it, but based on the price and also based on the fact that I have a very difficult time evaluating the quality of a doctor in the United States because unless, of course, I'm practicing in the same community as that doctor. But if I'm, for example, just walking into an emergency room somewhere with a problem, I just get whoever's on call and I have no idea whether they're any good or whether they're a black sheep who the hospital's keeping on staff because it's financially convenient. Right. That's the interesting thing. I mean, all you in this kind of heavily regulated licensing system that we have in the United States, all you really know is this guy's got a license and, and that's all you know. Whereas when you're doing kind of research in these other countries, you can see all the feedback and, and get all the information to know who has actually had the best experiences with the best doctors and get that sort of real world feedback, which just you really just can't do here. Yeah, exactly. So if I wanted to have, as an example, if I wanted to have, oh, I don't know, a facelift, I'm getting kind of old. Oh, no, we will say that. We'll say a hair transplant. I'm getting kind of bald. Okay, so if I, if I wanted to have a hair transplant, you know, there are probably, I would go to, T, I, I try to go to Tijuana for a lot of things because I see Tijuana as this place where you have a lot of benefits of agglomeration or, or economies of agglomeration. And what I mean by that is it's a place everybody goes for medical tourism. So you have a hospital on every quarter. You've got pharmacies, labs, everybody. They're just, they've invested a lot in the medical tourism industry. And I think you get a lot of really good things happening when that happens. So there are probably seven or eight guys in Tijuana who are doing hair transplants right now, follicular unit extraction. They've got all the greatest, newest robotics. So what I do is I go onto a forum and I find patients who had the procedures done by each of those different guys doing the procedure. And I call, I call up the patients, a few of each of them. And I'd say, Hey, how did things go? Did things go well? How did you do, what kind of results did you get? What do you think? And so I'd actually go a step beyond just the review sites, which would help me, but I'd actually go and get in contact with patients themselves because people post on forums all the time and they discuss this. And so I'd reach out to the patients and I'd get these kind of firsthand responses. And so I would probably be able to get an idea of where I get the best service, where I have the most experience. And then I'd talk to the doctors, find out the price. And as is always the case, you're always making this comparison of price versus service and quality. And, and I'd pick the right mix of that for me. And I think I'd get excellent service. All right. Well, Dr. Varner, it's been a pleasure having you on here talk about all these issues. And, you know, when, when your book actually releases you know, sometime in the next few months, maybe we'll have you back and, and dig into some more of this stuff because I know you have, as we know, you're very opinionated on, on a lot of these topics and could probably go for days on this stuff. Oh, definitely. We could go for days, but I'd be glad to be back anytime. Awesome. Then, uh, you know, before I let you go, I know you mentioned a few of the links there on your website, but feel free to give the full roundup of how everybody can find out more about your work and how everybody can, you know, keep up to date on the book. All right. Well, drvarner.com is the website and you can sign up for my email newsletter. Uh, there's a lot of great content on drvarner.com about taking power back from the medical cartels and into your own hands. And so uh, if you want to learn about how to take back control of your health, if you want to learn how to save money on your health care, drvarner.com is the absolute best place. And please sign up for my email newsletter. If you're interested in bariatric surgery, you'll be able to get your bariatric surgery guide on drvarner.com. And when I open my medical practice, if you're in one of the 24 states in which I have a medical license, I would be very glad to uh, provide you with any kind of medical care within the scope of my expertise via telemedicine, which is uh, excellent and a very convenient resource for, for you not to have to leave home, but to, to receive some really uh, good medical advice. So I hope to hear from you all at drvarner.com. Dr. Kyle Varner, keep up the great work. We'll talk to you soon. Keep on roaring. All right. Well, thank you for having me on and keep roaring.
All right, friends, I hope you enjoyed my conversation with Dr. Kyle Varner, someone who is very passionate not only about his profession and helping people, but about changing his profession and changing the world, really, ultimately, by changing the way we view healthcare and uh, exposing his uh, his co-workers, I guess, in a sense, uh, and himself, in a way, as members of this white coat cartel and trying to change that system. And the first step to creating change is by informing people about the problem. You cannot write a prescription until you've diagnosed the illness, and that is exactly what Dr. Kyle Varner is doing with his book, White Coat Cartels. Definitely look forward to that. We'll let you know when it actually comes out as it is in the final stages of production as we speak. And uh, Dr. Varner is someone that I was able to meet by going to the Libertarian National Convention held this past summer in New Orleans. And I was sent there thanks to our Lions of Liberty Pride members and supporters of our Patreon group, which you can find more at over at patreon.com slash lionsofliberty. For as little as $5 a month, you can join the Pride and get access to tons and tons of exclusive audio content, including Conspiracy Corner, The League of Liberty, Degenerate Gamblers, bonus segments with guests like we did last week where Bob Murphy took questions from members of the Pride. We have no shortage of content coming your way on our Patreon. Please do check that out. And the great part is you get to help support this show. Many ways you can support the show. You can uh, visit our sponsors at ammo.com slash Lions of Liberty. You can find out more about Health Excellence Plus by heading over to lionsofliberty.com slash health. And if you're shopping for the holidays, you can even shop through our Amazon link, which you can find over at lionsofliberty.com slash Amazon. But besides all of that stuff, the really the most important way you can help the show is by sharing it. Sharing it with your friends and family, telling your neighbors about it, knocking on their door the old-fashioned way. I don't really care how you get the word out there, but the way we have grown the show for the most part has been organically through word of mouth, and that is where you come in, my friends. That is where you come in, sharing the show, helping us spread the ideas of liberty every single week three days per week here at the Lions of Liberty podcast. Of course, don't forget to tune in to Brian this coming Wednesday on Electric Liberty Land and John on Friday with Felony Friday. Until next time, my friends, live long and live free.